0: And welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're joined today by Dr. Heather Stefaniak, urologist with Aurora Bay Care Urological Surgeons, to discuss Urolift, an innovative treatment option for enlarged prostate. Thanks for talking with us today, Dr. Stefaniak. Sure. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, Dr. Stefaniak, let's start out first off. This is a, sometimes can be a sensitive subject for individuals, so I want to start there. Um, let's talk a little bit about how common of an issue enlarged prostate is. And, and, and maybe why that's so common. Sure,
1: um, I guess first, um, what's the prostate? Um, my mom used to say um, the word prostrate, it's actually prostate. Uh, anywho, but the prostate is a reproductive gland. Um, it's deep down in the pelvis and it essentially um, makes PSA. And PSA is a blood test that we can do. There's kind of a hot topic. We can branch out and talk a little bit about that. But PSA is a protein that liquefies um, semen so that men can have children. Um, so other than the reproductive function, there isn't, um, you know, later in life there isn't a lot of great help from it. Um, it actually causes more issue. So from an anatomy standpoint, the bladder is up top the prostate surrounds the urethra, and the urethra is the urinary tube that urine goes through. So as the prostate enlarges, it starts to squeeze in on the urethra, and then basically that's an that's enlarged prostate or benign prostatic hyperplasia. So a big prostate is squeezing in on the urethra to obstruct it, very common. Um, typically after the age of 50, um, it's a spectrum, um, you know, probably 10 to 25% of men um, in their 50s are starting to have issues. Probably 50% of men are starting to have issues with an enlarged prostate after the age of 60. And then it just, you know, continues on as, as men age. Um, it's a natural process of the prostate enlarging and squeezing in
0: on the urethra. What causes an enlarged prostate or is this just part of the natural aging process?
1: Um, normal um, growth process, process of the prostate, it isn't, the prostate is not enlarging because of prostate cancer, um, it is just the natural process that happens to prostatic tissue is that it starts to, it continues to grow throughout life. So it, an enlarged prostate does not equal um, prostate cancer, there are essentially two different zones of the prostate. The central portion of the prostate is what is enlarging to squeeze in on the urethra, but it's just kind of a natural phenomenon of what happens to the prostate with time.
0: Is there any kind of genetic um, response for it or is it it something that's hereditary or is that something we don't really know?
1: We don't know yet. Um, We know there can be genetic um, mutations involved in prostate cancer. Um, So the BRCA1 and 2 genes which are linked to uh, mutations, can be linked to breast cancer, ovarian cancer. We are finding out that, that there are links there with prostate cancer, but we don't know where the BPH gene is. So we haven't identified that yet. Um, definitely just an- anecdotally, I've had lots of patients say, oh yeah, my dad had a, a rotor rooter which we'll talk about what that means, but my dad had a big prostate and had something done early in life. So there, there is probably a genetic component, we just haven't figured it out yet.
0: Absolutely. Regardless though, I mean, getting back to the question about how common this is for people, this is a fairly common uh, occurrence in in males of a certain age, correct? Yes,
1: um, probably I would say at over the age of 50, I and mean, then 50% of men are having some sort of, um, urinary issue. Um, so, and sometimes we see that earlier on, um, we can see 20 and 30 and 40 year old men having urinary issues that may not be in a large prostate, but um, but definitely the prostate becomes an issue in, in, you know, more than half of men over the age of 50. So it's something, you know, we want people talking about it. Um, right. you know We want people talking to their if you're not alone. I mean, it's it's very, very common. Prostate cancer is also, over the age of 50, one in four men have prostate cancer. So talking about the prostate is what we want. Um, yeah. So when someone comes to see me, you know, pretty much everyone walking in the door has an enlarged prostate when they come to see me at that point. But, um, but we um, will ask a lot of questions as far as, you know, men should start thinking about their urination, like, how's the stream? Um, how strong is it? How many times are you waking up at night to urinate? Uh Is there an urgency? Like I need to get to the bathroom, I am pulling over and we're gonna have an accident. Um, Those are some of the things that we're gonna be talking about when people come in to see me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I wanna get into some of how those symptoms of an enlarged prostate present in some patients or in most patients. But one of the questions that we had um, typically coming in quite a bit, and, and you had mentioned it already, is prostate an enlarged prostate linked to pros- uh, prostate cancer um, in general? No,
1: um,
0: so typically
1: two separate entities. I mean, have I seen um, men with a big prostate that also have prostate cancer? Yes, but it's typically sort of one or the other because there are different areas of the prostate that are involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so an in enlarged prostate, if you're coming in um, with these symptoms of urgency frequency now, they could potentially mean there's prostate cancer, but that's usually very advanced. Uh-huh. Uh, more, mainly the symptoms that we're talking about are more an enlarged prostate. So enlarged prostate doesn't cause prostate cancer.
0: Right, and that's what we wanna be clear about is that it's not necessarily linked. No, not absolutely. Linked. Well, thank you for that information. I want to get into some of the uh, symptoms that an enlarged prostate um, may cause in, in in some patients. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do they present themselves and are they different for every individual?
1: There's a spectrum, um, definitely. And and uh, patients' tolerance of things is different mm-hmm. too. I mean, some men, they may get up twice a night and it's miserable. Some men are up hourly and are like, "Well, I'm kind of used to it." And yeah. um, but typically, when they come to see us, they start having um, a feeling, a weakened stream. Um, so as those lobes of the prostate again are squeezing in on the urethra, that urethra is compressed, so um, the stream weakens. So sometimes it's a matter of you know, you're at the Packer game and there's a whole you, know, you can very easily see if you have a problem there or not. Now. I, I've never really been in the man, men men's bathroom, but from what patients say, you know, there's kind of this like um, thought of like how fast are you in and out? So if men are there standing there, also sometimes it takes a long time to start the urinary stream. You may have the sense like I need to go, and then you stand there, and it's minutes before something starts coming out. So that we call that hesitancy. So it's this um, it takes a while for urine the urine to come through. Um, and then the stream is weak. Um, It can be a stopping and a starting. A little bit comes out, stops. A little bit more comes out, stops. Um, There can also be a sense of when you're done urinating, there can be this little bit of a dribble afterward. So sometimes men that, you know, they notice like there's a little wetness in their underwear that they don't like, Um, and that can be a symptom that they come in to see us with. Um, As the disease, I mean, I'm, I'm saying disease, but as an enlarged prostate progresses, you can imagine the bladder has to work really hard to get urine through that urethra, yeah. because there's this blockage. So the bladder has to work harder to get the urine through the uh, enlarged prostate. So then over time, what we start to see is sort of a dysfunctional bladder, which we don't want, because then there's not There's not a lot we can do to repair a bladder once it's dysfunctional. So we try to repair the prostate before it's dysfunctional. But what can happen when the bladder becomes dysfunctional is that there's an urgency. Um, The bladder is getting really irritated because it's having to work hard over many years. So there's an urgency, there's a frequency, then there can be potential times when there's accidents. Um, Like I have to go right this second or we're going to have a problem. And sometimes men do start to wear a little shield or a pad in their underwear because a little bit of leakage is happening. Um, I have patients that tell me, rather than when they they know there's an issue because when they pull into the gas station, rather than get out and start pumping gas, they go to the bathroom first because they know if they're standing there pumping gas, they're gonna have an accident. So that's kind of that bladder dysfunction that can happen. Um, and then the getting up at night is if you're not emptying completely, which again is this big prostate's blocking the urethra, if each time they urinate, they're not getting all the urine out. Then they can be up more times at night to um, have to void. So, that getting up at night is the lack of sleep, um, is also something we see pretty regularly.
0: Right. And you just touched on it. So, I, there's a full spectrum of symptoms and the way that this can present in patients. Um, but it really does weigh on a person's quality of life. So, talk a little bit about that as far as what these symptoms can do to, to someone's, you know, oh, sure. daily living.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I have patients that don't want to go anywhere. Um, They don't necessarily want to, you know, maybe their their kids live in Milwaukee, and they would go down for a night to spend a night with them, but they don't want to because they don't want to be disturbing the family getting up five times a night. Um, So or they also they, they plan out, we call it like bathroom mapping. So people plan out, okay, I know I can make it to this gas station and then where's the next gas station? So it becomes this planning of your life around bathrooms. Um, and also planning if you're to the point of, I need pads because I might leak a little bit or I have a little bit of dribbling then people are having to figure out, okay, where for men, it's not as easy. Men, women just stick their pads in the purse. No one, you know, they are used to that. But men, where are they putting their pads? You know I mean? So it's this whole plan around the bathroom and around where am I putting my pads if need be. Um, so it definitely can affect quality of life. Um, just the, you know, the confidence of knowing where a bathroom is or not where it is. Um, so going to new places can sometimes be an issue.
0: So, Dr. Spaniak, you've just gone over some of the symptoms uh, individuals with enlarged prostate might suffer from. Um, to recap some of those, you mentioned frequent urination, weakened urine stream, um, you know, feeling like you're not completely emptying, or difficulty starting and, and uh, stopping urination, among other things that you had talked about. Yep. As I mentioned, we do have hope. So let's talk a little bit more about some of those treatment options um historically what treatment options are available for patients who might be dealing with an enlarged prostate
1: sure um historically um there i mean the first line if you will is medications so Mm -hmm. the prostate is a gland Um, there is some muscle fibers within that gland so there's two um categories of medications that we can use to deal with an enlarged prostate the first um Uh, family of medications is something called alpha blockers. No one needs, there's not a quiz later, nobody needs to remember that, but there is a medication called Flomax or Tamsulosin, which most people have heard of. There's lots of advertising there, you know, in, um, in magazines and things like that. But essentially what Flomax does is maximum flow, uh, hence the name Flomax. So it basically um, binds to those muscle fibers and allows the prostate to relax and open so that there's an open channel for the urine to drain through. Flomax typically kicks in pretty quickly, so people know like, if they're miserable, they probably will notice a benefit pretty quickly within the first week or two. Uh The other family of medicines as a medication, um, or there's two medications, dutasteride and finasteride. Again, no quiz later, but essentially the concept is um, those medications shrink the prostate down. They prevent testosterone from acting on the prostate, so the prostate shrinks. So smaller prostate, less, um, less of a constriction, better flow. So those are medications that have been around for a long time. Um, sometimes, despite those medications, people are still having issues. So that's usually, it's pretty typical for patients to already be on those from their primary care doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. If they're not on those, um, then that may be something we trial first. Um, but if those medications haven't worked or there's side effects from the medications, so biggest side effects of those medications are there's something called retrograde ejaculation. So the ejaculatory ducts, there's two little openings right kind of in the middle of the prostate, and that's where semen comes out. Um, and so what happens when people are on those medications, that prostate relaxes. So the semen goes back into the bladder, mixes with urine, then they urinate the fluid out. So that retrograde ejaculation is something that can happen with both, um, with some of the surgeries we'll talk about. But... Um, but also with Flomax and Finasteride, some men, that freaks them out and they do not want to have that issue. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so that can be something that um, can be a side effect of those medications. So if people are on medications, they don't like the side effects or they're having issues despite the medications, then we start talking about what are options to deal with the big prostate. The gold standard um, thing to do is something called a TURP. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna write it up here. A terp, TURP, T U R P, is transurethral resection of the prostate. And what that means is we go in there, so my same picture is here. So this central portion is the problem. So a TURP is we go and we scrape open the middle portion. So this center portion, we're basically removing. There's lots of ways of doing that. There's lasers, there's, um, a ways that we have of kind of coring out that tissue. So people kind of describe that as a rotor rooter. So, you know, I have the old farmer that comes in, he's like, Yeah, I had the rotor rooter done, whatever. So that's a rotor rooter or a TERP is what we call it. Um, so a TERP's great operation. Um, however, because we're removing some of the prostate tissue, then you get this essentially like scab of, so there's this shell of prostate. So this amount of prostate will be left behind Mm -hmm. both sides. So it's this raw surface area and the lining of the urethra has to grow back up. The lining of the bladder has to grow back over. So it's a good six to eight week recovery process, meaning there's intermittent bleeding for a while. Sometimes we see people with catheters for a a prolonged period of time because Mm -hmm. we're actually removing part of the prostate and that whole area has to heal again. Um, But a TERP will work no matter really the, if there's a really large prostate, we can still scrape out tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, So a TERP is a greater operation, but just a longer recovery process. Um, Because of that longer recovery process, and probably also because of, lots of men are on blood thinners these days. Um, Mm -hmm. Anybody walking down the streets like on aspirin um, for cardio protection, heart health, Um, So some men are on multiple blood thinners, whether it's because of heart issues, um, blood clotting issues, lots of different reasons. Some of those men can't be on blood thinners. So we can't do some big resection if people are on blood thinners. So then um, basically it was, this is a pretty invasive thing. How can we do the same by opening up the prostate in a less invasive way? So then that's when kind of Eurolift came around. There are some other microwave therapies which are done in the office. Little, uh, they haven't really withstood the test of time, but a Eurolift is something that opens up the prostate um, in a safe manner um, that allows us to kind of do the same thing as a Terp. But on average, it's a one to two week recovery process rather than a six to seven week recovery process.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Let's get into a little bit more about Urolift because um, as you had just mentioned, it's sort of a minimally invasive option for some patients who it might be good for.
1: So a Eurolift essentially is, I describe, um, another way of describing the prostate is when a prostate is enlarged, it's kind of like curtains that are closed. And what we do is we put in these implants that essentially tack the prostate back. So again, if you think of curtains that are closed, we know what curtain ties are. I don't know if anyone really uses them anymore. But, um, but curtain ties essentially are these little implants in the prostate to pull the tissue open. Um, So one implant is there's a little clip on the urethra side, a stitch in the middle that we can tension. um, And then there is a, a clip on the capsule of the prostate. So it's essentially two clips on each side with a stitch in the middle, so we're compressing that tissue between the clips. Over time, on the urethra end, you may ask like, well, what happens to these clips? Um, they're in there forever. Um, they, that, that tissue that's in between the clips, there is this compression factor of, uh, there's a some element of compression, so that tissue actually shrinks down too. Um, But then on the urethra side, the um, lining of the urethra eventually kind of grows over the clip. So if I look at someone, if I scoped somebody with a a telescope into the bladder, eight weeks after a urolift, I can't see those clips anymore. So they basically just kind of grow over. We can still see the indentations, but we can't see the little clips. Now we don't want, we can talk a little bit about, sometimes there's people have huge prostates. So there are times where people have part of the prostate tissue can kind of grow up into the bladder. Those are people that may not be the best urolift candidate because I don't want to put clips in the bladder themselves because then there could potentially be stones left for them and other things like that. So in the urethra, clips are good, In the bladder clips are not good. So it kind of um, that kind of kind of sometimes direct if we do a urolift or not. So, not everyone that comes in to see me is a EuroLift candidate. If they have a ginormous prostate, um, then we might think about other treatment options for them. So, a EuroLift usually to know if a person is a candidate in the office, I will put a telescope in their bladder to kind of know the lay of the land before we get um, we go down the road of a EuroLift. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. So, let's walk through that experience for a patient. Yeah. They're, Let's assume that you've decided that the Uralift is a, a great procedure for them compared to maybe some other procedures. How long does this procedure take? You know, um, is it considered an outpatient surgery? Are they in the office? Are they put out under anesthesia or how does that work?
1: Uh, a Uralift, there are people in the country that do, do this procedure in the office. I have done probably 200 of these now. Um, I am not. I don't really feel like doing them in the office is helpful. Um, I mean, I guess if there's someone that just cannot have any sort of anesthetic, we might consider it. But what happens is it's a rigid scope that goes in there I want the implants to be in the right place. So I don't want someone uncomfortable moving around. Uh Um, The whole procedure is five minutes. Um, The anesthetic takes longer than the actual procedure, but I want the implants to be in a precise location. um, And I want the patient to have a good experience and not be miserable. So I do not do, and or my partners that do uroliths, we are currently doing them in a surgical center. Uh So that means someone comes in um, the morning of the procedure there's a whole length of, I mean, they get COVID testing prior to, there's all those things that are normal part of surgeries. But basically, you come in probably an hour to two prior to the operation. Uh, the anesthesiologist will meet you, discuss things. The um, anesthetic that we use is not a general anesthetic. It's essentially twilight, um, which means um, a, a sedative is given to, to the patients that they're sleeping but do not have a breathing tube. So there's not a breathing tube during the operation. Um, and then you know, we put in, I put the implants in. Majority of people um, do not have a catheter going home. Um, so when we do that rotor-rooter, raw surface area, bleeding, catheters are a for sure thing. Um, and those things can sometimes be an overnight stay in the hospital. Urolift because I'm not removing any of the prostate tissue, but rather pinning it open probably 90% of people go home without a catheter. There is a potential, I mean, anytime we do anything to the prostate, there's always a possibility of a catheter, but most people go home without a catheter. They do have to urinate before they leave. And if they cannot, then catheter. Um, A lot of people go home without a catheter, um, but it's not, it's done in the surgical center, the whole procedure is five minutes, but then they're waking up after a little sedation. Um, But I tell people, usually they're physically in the building three or four hours, uh, meaning they come in an hour or two before, the active time of the procedure is short, and then they're recovering, kind of waiting to urinate. Because those implants are in the urethra, it's pretty typical for people to have maybe a week or two-ish of urgency that the bladder is kind of annoyed by the implants, um, those little clips that are in there, kind of the lining has to regrow over those clips. So there can be a little bit of urgency, a little bit of burning, um, frequency. Those things are kind of annoying the first few days. They can last, you know, the first week or so. We have medication. So... People typically go home with medications to help with the burning, medication to help with the inflammation in the prostate, and then a little antibiotic. But usually the stream is better right away because things are open. Um, It's just those irritative symptoms the first week.
0: Yeah, absolutely, which is a stark difference maybe to some of the other procedures that you had talked about as far as recovery, at least. Um. Yes, Right.
1: Um, So people ask like, well, when can I get back to my golf game? When can I start chopping wood or whatever? Usually a a Terp, that rotor, rooter or any other, there are other ways of removing prostate tissue. Anytime we're removing prostate tissue, it's a good month before people are lifting and doing stuff like that, because any lifting more than 10 pounds, they can bleed uh, because of the raw surface area. So I, I tell people a week, Um, of, I mean, they can walk, um, but a week before they're chopping wood, getting on a four-wheeler. If I I have done with regard to like blood thinners, um, with regard to blood thinners, I usually like stopping the blood thinners if possible, but there's that again that we can't stop blood thinners. So I have done urolifts while on blood thinners, they have a slightly you know higher risk of a little bit of bleeding. Maybe they would go home overnight with a catheter because of bleeding, but they that a Urolift is still an option even if they are on blood thinners and cannot stop them.
0: Are there any risk factors or side effects from the implant itself that that people should be aware of? No, the
1: implants, I mean they are little metal tabs, but people can still get an MRI, um, no issues there. Um, if um, if we're like, so if somebody has a urolift, um, they have an enlarged prostate, they're going to be following with us for a long time. Like we're going to see those men probably yearly. Uh-huh. So if we did a Eurolift, and let's say five years down the road, they do develop prostate cancer, not an independent factor, independent event, um, not because of the Eurolift, but if they developed um, potential prostate cancer later on, The nice thing about those implants is that we could still remove, like if somebody develops prostate cancer, one of the treatment options is remove the prostate, the whole prostate. Uh Uh, We can still do that if someone has a urolift. If somebody has had that rotor rooter procedure, makes it a uh, removal of the prostate makes it super difficult. So the nice thing about a Eurolift is that because it's less invasive, we still potentially have all options if someone ha- did develop l- prostate cancer later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the actual procedure itself, I mean anytime we're instrumenting anything, is there a risk of infection? Right. Like so short-term risk factors are a little bit of blood in the urine probably. Um, potential infection. We send people home with antibiotics, so that's less of a risk. Um, but just having those metal implants in there permanently, there isn't any potential problems with them. Um, uroliths have been around for close to 10 years, and um, mm-hmm. various, you know, it, they were in Europe first. Um, and so we're kind of seeing we, what we don't know is what's the longevity of uroliths, meaning how long is that tissue going to stay open? Because the tissue around the Eurolift implants continues to grow right so i would guess and what we're kind of seeing is that it may be something that every 10 years or something if tissue is growing in between the implants we may have to go back in there and put more implants in to open things up Mm -hmm. So we can do that i mean if we needed to put more implants in to open things up a little bit more that's an option Mm -hmm. Um, if somebody developed, I mentioned if, if we're too close to the bladder, people can develop like stones and things, Mm -hmm. that would be a circumstance where we would have to remove the little implant. So what we would do is go in with a scope and kind of get down to that little clip and remove it. Um, but people can still have MRIs, people, you know, any option as far as prostate cancer treatments and option after Urolift and then doing a repeat Urolift is something that, you know, is a possibility.
0: right Uh, you had talked about it a little but i want to reiterate again people who would be a good candidate for this procedure and maybe some of the ways that you can tell, you know, when a patient comes in if they are eligible for this procedure. Sure.
1: Um, we um really anyone on anybody on prostate medication, um if they're already on finasteride, flomax and they're still they're still up three times a night, they're still there's having a little, you know, urgency to get to the bathroom, um those are people that should be coming to a urologist and seeing us. Um, if people are starting to notice that I got to urinate right this second and running to get to the bathroom, the guy at the gas station going into the bathroom first before pumping the gas. We want to get those people in before their bladder is permanently dysfunctional. Um, So anybody that's up, you know, multiple times a night, we can stream, feel like they're not emptying completely. Those are people that should be coming in to see us when they come to see us. Then we, there's a, um, there's a score sheet that we do, which is something called the international prostate prostate symptom score and essentially ask questions about urgency, frequency, rate your urgency from one to five, how bad is it? And the higher the score, the worse things are. So we use it regularly with men coming into the office and that kind of helps us um, know how their quality of life is affected, how bad are things. Mm-hmm. If men are starting to have urinary tract infections because they're not emptying completely, um, if they can't urinate and have a catheter, that something needs to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so those are men
1: that come to our office. Um, typically what we do then is I will talk to them at length. I will probably put a telescope in the bladder to see what the prostate really looks like. There are times where, Again, prostates can be huge. Um, the normal prostate is the size of like a walnut with a shell. Uh-huh. So a about Christmas, the thing of you know nuts. Walnut with a shell is the typical prostate. I've seen prostates that are the size of an orange, uh, the size of bigger than that, double an orange. Um, so by looking in there, I'll have a better idea of how big it is. Um, an ideal Urolift is a guy that um, has... Enlarged prostate, but not the prostate as big as your head. Mm-hmm. If it's a prostate as big as your head, then probably removing tissue rather than just pinning tissue back is going to be a better option. Um, this is a urologists or something that are covered by all insurances. Um, we that you know we have an insurance specialist in our office, so we're um, submitting information to them, and um, it is something that is covered by all insurances, with the caveat that currently there's a number that a number of implants that we can um, implant so all insurances will allow us to put in only seven implants seven is the lucky number um Mm -hmm. some men with not a huge prostate we can only we could put four in if you think back to that one picture of the implants going in the prostate's a symmetric thing yes so in that far right picture you can see there's four implants so four might be a number that if someone has slightly enlarged prostate, but not huge, then we could usually do, you know, four to five. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most I can put in a prostate is seven is why, why wouldn't it be an even number? I talk to the insurance companies. It doesn't make any sense, but anywho, um, but seven is a lucky number. So if I have somebody that has a really big prostate, I kind of know that seven's not going to do justice to a big prostate. And that's when we think about doing other options. Uh, Uh, I don't remember your question, but I I think I answered it.
0: (laughs) You absolutely did. And I'm glad that you talked about the insurance because that was another question that was coming in from um, some of our viewers. Um, But let's talk briefly about results. I know leading up to this, we were kind of um, showcasing some patient testimonials, those kinds of things. What have you seen from your patients uh who have gotten this procedure
1: quality of life hugely beneficial um i have um i have seen men come back in that are just like i can't believe i waited this long um and um so i would say probably 80 80 of men are super happy um now if you ask if you have them like if we're talking to them within that first week They're having burning frequency, irritability. Um, So, you know, if we're looking at like a month out from surgery, people, you know, the ones that are past that initial irritation, men are doing awesome. I mean, we are, um, they're getting to the bathroom, they're not wearing pads, they're not planning out where the bathrooms are. um, So, that dysfunctional bladder things are opened up so they have less urgency. Um, So, quality of life benefits for sure. Um, Backing up as far as a side effect goes, So I I mentioned that word retrograde ejaculation with the medications Mm -hmm. and I those little dots on that one picture. Um, The ejaculatory ducts, some men freak out with, they don't want any of the issues with ejaculation. Um, On a side note, erections are not a problem. Like an enlarged prostate does not cause erection issues. Uh-huh. Um, but the ejaculatory ejecta- issues can be there with medications or with rotor rooting the prostate because we're resecting and removing the ejaculatory ducts. But when I'm doing a urolift, I'm on the outside. I'm kind of on the sides of the prostate, whereas the little ducts are right in the middle. Uh-huh. So um, people have no problem with ejaculation is normal after a urolift. So that's something that really is you know beneficial. We don't have any of those sexual side effects from a urolift. Leading into a urolift, um, the bathroom was kind of this. I'm always planning my life around my urination. Mm-hmm. A urolift, the goal is you're not planning your life around urination anymore. You're just urinating normally. It's not becoming this big cumbersome thing. So right. people are very happy um, from a bleeding standpoint. When we uh, when we do terps, the rotor rooter bleeding can be an issue. Um, now. Rarely bleeding can be a problem anytime we're instrumenting the prostate, but with just putting the implants in, it's rare that we have to like readmit somebody, put a catheter in for clots. So bleeding is much less of a potential that we see after a year lift. So it's been it's been a great addition to, um, to my practice, for sure.
0: I want to talk a little bit about um, the process about someone coming to see you. So um, you had mentioned that People who come and see you are probably already on medications, those kinds of things. But if I'm someone who's watching or I have a family member suffering from the symptoms that you've mentioned today, uh, what is what is their course of action or what steps should they take?
1: Call our office for an appointment. Um, typically, you do not need a referral to come see a urologist. Um, if you're having some of these symptoms and you're like, you know, I'm on 20 medications already. I don't really want to be on another one. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a Urolift is an equivalent procedure. So there's something called the American Urological Association, which puts out guidelines of how to treat different um, urologic diseases. Um, A Urolift is actually equivalent to uh, Flomax or Finasteride. So it doesn't, insurance does not require you to be on medication prior to a Urolift. And as, we're, as men are on these medications for years and years, we are seeing there may be some cognitive changes with the prolonged medications. There may be some sexual side effects with prolonged medication. So sometimes, you know, you being on medication, you don't have to be before we can do a procedure. Mm-hmm. But men that want to come see me, you know, call us and make an appointment. Um, it is something there's um, there's currently three of us in the office that are doing urolifts. We have satellite clinics throughout northeastern North Wisconsin, so kind of depends on the day who's in the office. But um, but definitely just give a call, and um, you know it, it's something that we can chat about. And coming to see me is you're going to be given a questionnaire as to like I said how bothered you are by symptoms. Um, we are going to need to look and potentially do an exam, so that you know <laughs> that's going to be part of coming in to see me. Um, and then I may end up looking into the bladder with a telescope to see the lay of the land. Um, that's not scary. That takes a minute. Um, it's uh, sh- you know we're in and out. We're, you know, knowing what we have, um, but that's part of the process too. Um, but it you know opening this discussion is something that it can really help the men out a lot, you know, they, rather than being afraid to go out because they want to know where the bathroom is, it's something that they can definitely, like, live their life without thinking about their prostate anymore.
0: Right, absolutely. So it's sort of the beginning of the conversation and, and getting to that point, and and you you touched on it a little bit. I wanted to to touch on sort of what that looks like when they come to see you, but there's the questionnaire and then the possibility for some exams, so they should be able to expect that. Yes. Yep. If, an enlarged prostate or the issues or the symptoms are not treated, is there a potential for, for something more serious or more serious health concerns to develop?
1: Sure. Um, what can over time, what we can see, I mean, again, you know, every disease process is a spectrum, but, um, but what we can see over time is that bladder dysfunction, that mm-hmm. bladder having to work hard against a big prostate, the factor of urgency, or you know urge leakage that can be over years if you know someone's up seven times a night for ten years and just doesn't want to go to the doctor that bladder dysfunction and leakage could potentially be something that is permanent so we want to try to prevent that from happening um, but over time what if you um, if we don't treat um, an enlarged prostate if the bladder is not emptying completely the other thing that can happen is that people retain fluid in their bladder the kidneys drain into the bladder. So over time, what can happen is there can actually be back pressure and, uh, kind of pressure of urine up into the kidneys. So if left untreated, this enlarged prostate issue can actually cause renal and kidney damage because of that back pressure phenomenon. Um, so we want to prevent that from happening, obviously, because once there's kidney damage, there may not be going, we may not be able to reverse that either. Um, so that, you know, the untreated, um, enlarged prostate kidney issues definitely can happen long-term bladder issues can happen um the bladder itself can over time even not work so there's men that come in that are like initially you know they started having issues and they just let it be they get to a point where they have liters of urine in their bladder and they have no idea um we could open their prostate up but maybe their bladder doesn't work anymore because it's so stretched out so we want to prevent those things before before they happen
0: Definitely. So, so definitely not something they should wait on if, if they are experiencing symptoms like these, there is, there is help and options available to them. So definitely,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of information today, Dr. Stefaniak. Is there, um, a few key pieces of advice or takeaways, uh, that you have for anyone maybe experiencing these symptoms or interested in learning more about Uralift or other treatments options available?
1: Um, Number one, it's not it's not some uh, taboo topic, Um, you know, talking about urination, talking about your prostate um, is something you should feel comfortable with doing with your doctor. I mean, I know men like get together at like the coffee shop and they're having their morning coffee. They talk about it because that's sometimes those guys are coming to see me like, hey, Joe just had a Uralib. What can I get one to so men are talking about it together, but then there's a lot of men that then don't take the step of like, okay, I'm going to talk to a medical professional. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to talk to your doctor, doctor about it. We have treatment options. Um, so that's the first thing is just talk about it and it's it's okay. Um, and then there's now lots of non-invasive or less invasive options um, that are providing lots of great quality of life to people with less recovery process. So comment in the comments, yes, and we can talk
0: about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Dr. Stefaniak, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Dr. Heather Stefaniak is a urologist with Aurora Baycare Urological Surgeons. She currently sees patients in Green Bay and in Sturgeon Bay. Uh, and if you wanna learn more about Baycare Clinic or Aurora Baycare Urological Surgeons, visit us by clicking on the link in this post. And to request appointment, you can visit baycare.net.